0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Open Mic Podcast. My name is Caroline. I'm a rising senior at Columbia University, and I'm so excited to be hosting this series, where we'll be talking about school and life and everything in between. Each episode will feature a new topic and a different guest. And today, I'm so excited to be introducing my good friend, Caroline Drong. Caroline, thank you so much for being here with me today.
1: Thank you, Caroline. And I'm super delighted to be on your podcast today. Like. We've been friends for so long. And also it's so good to see you after over a year since the pandemic began. It's so good to see you again too,
0: Caroline. And do you wanna give a quick intro to who you are and what you study?
1: Yes, of course. So as Caroline introduced, I'm Caroline Zhuang and I am a second year PhD student here at Columbia University. I'm within the earth and environmental sciences department and I've been studying basically wildfires and climate for the past year. And I also graduated back in 2017 with a bachelor's in Earth and Planetary Sciences from Harvard University. And in between my, my bachelor's and my PhD, I've been working down at Maryland at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center on landslides. And so NASA is super cool. And also, you know, start my PhD, it's been super exciting being in Earth Sciences in general. And on the side, I'm an artist, I really love using art to communicate science, but also communicate my visions of the future for space. And also, I do a lot of of interesting volunteering in the in the aerospace industry. So I'm executive member of the Brooke Owens Fellowship, and I founded spaceinterns.org. So all these different initiatives to increase accessibility within space.
0: Yeah, I think that's so awesome that you're not only You're like currently a student, but then you're also a mentor to younger students who are undergrads or maybe even like younger than that. And I think it's cool to have this type of like big sister figure or like a mentor figure that someone can can talk to and actually get to know and like get to know on a personal level, rather than on just like a. I don't know impersonal more impersonal level, but yeah Um, and that's so awesome that you found this passion in Earth and Planetary Sciences or Earth and Environmental Sciences. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into that in college or even before that?
1: Yeah, so that's a really great question because I think I think a lot of Earth scientists say like my path was winding and it, I wasn't actually interested in Earth sciences from the beginning. So I, as a really young age, I really wanted to be an artist and that's like what I wanted to do. And my parents were like, oh you know that's that's really great you want to be an artist We want to support you but also we are both like stem majors so also we want to introduce you to the sciences and through like having them be introducing me to all these different cool opportunities one of them was uh, like learning about nasa and they had a there was a nasa inspires online learning community back in high school like and i joined it and and through that i found out that you can apply for nasa internships as a high school student and through that i ended up at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, with my with the same advisor who who uh, oversaw my work when I was a NASA contractor, like mm-hmm. between Harvard and Columbia, and then I was working on landslides, and that's when I realized like I didn't know you can learn about like space, but also learn about Earth, and I didn't realize there were all these Earth observing satellites that look at things like precipitation and climate, and and even like tree growth, all from space. And so I became interested in space. I became interested in earth sciences from space. And so when I got into Harvard, I was looking around for like what major I should do. And then I landed on earth and planetary sciences.
0: Oh, that's a perfect major I feel, (laughs) for what you're (laughs) interested in. And I think it's so cool that your high school internship mentor was your same mentor as when you were a contractor between undergrad and grad school. Was
1: there like a shift in dynamic? yeah so i think it's really cool because it's almost almost embarrassing that that my mentor dahlia kirschbaum she's an amazing woman and she's an amazing leader in the nasa earth science community and embarrassing not so much that she she's my lead like she's my mentor but embarrassing that she saw me grow up as a <laughs> awkward high school student to become then like a Postgraduate, like bachelor's student, and then now in the PhD realm. Like, she basically saw me grow up from high school all the way through college. <laughs> and I think that there's no shift in that, luckily, like, not so much in thinking, because she's always been an amazing mentor. And the shift is maybe me coming into my PhD and then just growing ever more grateful for her mentorship and her leadership.
0: Yeah, again, like this type of personal connection, a long term personal connection is really important. I think that's, I guess it makes it even more fun too. like you're you're doing your job. But then you're also like, you have this mentor figure who is has been there
1: for a long time. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, and I think it brings up like a, a great thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently is just having people who are able to champion for you and vouch for you and your abilities throughout your career. And I think it's been especially important with me that I've had mentors in high school. And then I had mentors and advisor in college who believed in me and were able to guide me into this career path to become a PhD student. And I don't think I would have done it without them. Yeah. Like not even for, even just summer internships that, you know, mentors are so important for vouching for letters of recommendation and then for writing your letters of recommendation to go into the next step.
0: How was your undergrad experience at Harvard, by the way?
1: yeah so all in all i love my undergrad experience at harvard i thought that like i made so many good and amazing connections with professors like because earth and planetary sciences is super small there are maybe only 10 graduating students per year and so if the professor to student ratio was one to one and outside of that i actually like i don't know if you know much about the harvard like dorm life but after freshman year, you get sorted into one of 13 upperclassmen dorms. So I got sorted in the Quincy House, and the resident deans there really made an effort to try to bring the house together. And whether that's, like, how successful that is really depends on who your resident dean is. But I truly loved the the two who were at my house, which were, like, Lee Gurk and Deb Gurk. And they they just really made an effort to, Bring everyone together by like having fun events in the dining hall having like little mini like cake decorating competitions or i remember back may the 4th in like 2017 like lee girk he just steps out and he has like an entire like darth vader costume on <laughs> to celebrate during during our regular dinner time so house spirit was really good and and the extracurriculars are really good and i mean my favorites like, like i'll give a shout out to the environmental action committee which really made a stand and like tried to bring healthier eating to the like to the dining halls, and we created like Veguary to promote less eating of meat, so so that way like we don't have to have as many carbon emissions from like cows, for example, and like and it was called Veguary because it was in February, and then <laughs> and then another favorite club was the Harvard Comics Magazine, the Harvard Crunch Magazine which was the, the student-run comics magazine literary club where we draw comics and then we publish them in, the, in a seasonal or like semesterly publication. So both super cool, really enjoyed those experiences. Also joined the Asian American dance troupe, also great. Lots of fun things going on in college and I have fond memories. It was definitely very hard in terms of classes, but that's the college life, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, <laughs> what about, Since you're you're a PhD now, so that means that you must have had some undergrad research experience, right?
1: Yeah, so it started a little bit later in my undergraduate than I think most students start. So I know that a lot of students get really involved in freshman year, which is awesome. And it didn't really pick up for me until say uh, junior year when I took a class that was basically supposed to be just like research oriented. So you're just supposed to do a research project. And that's when I first got introduced to my soon-to-be senior thesis advisor, Bill Munger. And he, like, and so like Dr. Munger was super awesome. He introduced me to all this Harvard forest data and he and he and I collaborated on a project that was basically looking at how does like how does the carbon emissions in the Harvard forest balance with like how much carbon the trees are growing every year. And so and like and in order for that balance to happen, like how many trees can we cut down and then turn into, like wood for, using the wood burner in the Harvard Forest to generate electricity? So that was like my first experience, like first like major experience with research, other than say summer internships, which I also had projects. And then, my really big research experience was trying to tackle my own question. Then in my senior thesis, which was in senior year, and I worked with like Dr. Steve and Dr. Bill Munger in order to really learn more about carbon exchange in the harvard forest and and understand like what are the components of that carbon exchange from photosynthesis so like the trees absorb in in carbon dioxide and then exhale oxygen Mm -hmm. and then you also have the process of respiration so the trees are also they still have cellular i mean their cells are both are both undergoing this photosynthesis but they're also respiring so it's the transformation of oxygen into carbon dioxide and like as and then the big question is like is this changing over time and so the Harvard forest has over has this like long term ecological station that monitors all these processes since like since like 1991 when Dr. Steve Wolfsy installed the station and i got to use that data and put it into this small statistical model that talked about these two processes the photosynthesis and the respiration and that was really cool to me and that was really the catalyst that then made me realize like you know maybe maybe it would be cool to study this more although right after right after um, my undergrad i was also in a very big mindset of let me go into the work forest like let me go do something that's not directly academic academia and like being a student. So so then that's how I ended up going and I took a summer internship right before I started at NASA. So I was doing space consulting for a little bit and then I went into landslides and citizen science. So, And that was a project coordinator position. So lots of, that, that's kind of like the path for me for research.
0: That's so cool.
1: What does a space
0: consultant do?
1: Yeah, so great question. <laughs> so i was working at this company bryce tech and and my job was really like analyzing a lot of like satellite launch data so it was a report that was produced that was basically looking at like how many how many small satellites are launching and like what are their purposes and i got to use their database and really make those connections and it was like it was another like research project just in a different kind of field (laughs) and so And so space consultants basically make all these analyses and then look, basically do a reflection based on all these things on like what, or how has the aerospace industry grown? Like whether that's in satellites or whether that's in launch vehicles, like basically rockets, like how are the rockets doing? You know, you can analyze things like space tourism which is still up and coming, it's <laughs> continuing to evolve and um, yeah, looking into the future, like what will the services be in the future for aerospace, like where are the, where's the market?
0: Did you have to have a really strong statistical background in order to be a space consultant or in order to be a PhD in earth and environmental sciences?
1: So I think the statistical background definitely is is still coming along. <laughs> 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 I. When I first started as, or doing my senior thesis work, I definitely would say I had no statistical background. I've definitely, I taken like the intro classes in statistics and that was like, that helped me at least with just beginning. There was a lot of like programming knowledge that I had to like pick up really quickly. So I would say when you're starting out, no, but then as I keep going through my research, even now, I'm like, I need more statistical background. I need to keep learning
0: wow so it's kind of like learning on the job in a way yeah
1: right right but then the nice thing about being in a phd is that i feel like i can dedicate all this time to learning and it's not so much being put forth into a a project but i get to learn Mm -hmm. at something on a really deep level oh cool
0: and before your phd what was your experience as a project coordinator at nasa like
1: Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's a really fun story. And that's, I, I look back so fondly on on working as a project coordinator. And so, as I mentioned, I worked with Dalia Kirschbaum. And I also worked with in another close colleague, Thomas Stanley. And together we formed like this landslide team at NASA. And basically, Dalia and Thomas have been creating this massive landslide catalog so a database of over 10 years now probably more closer to 13 years of landslides from all over the world and all rainfall based so rainfall like happens like it rains really hard there's flooding it dislodges the land and then you have this landslide that flows down whatever mountain slope and so they they gather data based on like when the landslides happens where it happens so latitude longitude things like is it a mudslide is it a, a debris flow? Is it a rock slide? And then they were able to find this information from like newspaper sources. So news would report these like, oh, there's a landslide along this this specific road. And then, and then they would gather all this information, put it into this database. And they've been collecting this for so long. And this is something that Dalia has started actually back when she was a PhD student at Columbia. Oh, wow. And yeah. And so then coming to my role, I was brought on as a project coordinator to continue this effort but turn it into a citizen science project and citizen science meaning that anyone around the world regardless of your expertise you too can submit landslides to a global landslide catalog and help populate it and also hopefully reduce biases in the data because previously all of it was collected by a few scientists and interns at nasa but what if anyone can submit it and take landslide data from their own newspapers, or even better, landslides that they see in person that aren't reported. And so oh. I, I had the really amazing opportunity to, to make this, like to help like design what the Citizen Project would be like. And that included making training resources so anyone can come into the project without knowing anything about landslides and still start to collect that information. And then I designed the website, it's landslides.nasa.gov. And then I I got to just like make all these really cool, really cool like graphics and and tutorial videos. And then I was on the NASA Snapchat once. It was really <laughs> amazing. Or I was on it twice actually, not just once. So that's basically my experience. And then I got to present my results. I published a paper. So really, really great experience. Wow. Yeah, so my project coordinator role was very very self-defined in in that artistic sense and yeah so i basically knew i came into this position with all these art skills that i've developed by for example working at the harvard comics crunch magazine and then also just really loving art and continuing it since i was young and so i had the photoshop skills i brought in like the i brought in like the web design skills that i also picked up from. That's another story from like the harvard forest like working as as an intern there for just a small winter and yeah this project coordinator role was really cool because it was a really a way that i combined all these different creative skills that i had for this specific project and then exercised them all in all these different ways and i'm really lucky that this role was was so like free and I was allowed to define exactly what I wanted to work on in order to bring this project to life, and that that my advisor let me have all this creative freedom in order to do that, and it let me be a leader for myself too. Because even though I was working for someone, I was working for a project. It was very, it was very much like me telling myself what to do next and thinking about what was the next step. And I think it, overall, it was. A, it was definitely a great independent experience, but also a great team experience because I was working with other people on this landslides team to get this project going.
0: It's really tough to be able to, it's nice to have the independence, but then it's tough to be able to tell yourself what to do next, because I feel like as a student, we're used to, like in classes, we're used to our professors say like, oh, next week we're learning about X, Y, and Z, and then our exam is on this day, and then our final project is on, in two weeks from now but then being being able to hold yourself accountable to meeting the deadlines that you set for yourself i think that's really cool did you apply to phd programs while you were a project coordinator then
1: yeah yeah so that was a little bit challenging too which is balancing <laughs> that time to apply to programs while also making sure i was still finishing up my nasa landslide's work and it was also was also very lucky for me and this goes back to the theme of like having great mentors and great advisors that that my my mentor she really pushed me to apply to phd programs because she sees that potential in me going into this next step that she was very encouraging and knew that i was applying even while i was finishing up this project oh
0: so did you know that you wanted to do a phd when you were going into the project coordinator role
1: so actually no that's a great question because i went into this project coordinator role thinking like I really want to not be a student anymore and I'm going to work at this until I really like need to decide and and then it was while I was at NASA and being exposed to amazing role models and colleagues that I've been working with who are in the earth sciences division that I realized like this is really cool I wish I could learn more about the statistical modeling side of things and like I wish I knew I could use this data and create like predictive models, or, um, like even design the projects like this citizen science project that would then go off into the future, and somebody else like me who <laughs> would be working on it, and I would be the PI, and and that really led to me applying for the PhD because at that point, maybe about a year into the program, I was I was set like I need to do a PhD if I want to continue forward and in, in the path that I want to go to. How did you decide on Columbia for your PhD? Yeah, so that's a great question too. And I think it really came down to the advisor and Mm -hmm. I've applied to a a thing in earth science sciences that the advisor is super important and especially the advisor really needs to know you before you apply because otherwise, how are they going to really evaluate your, like just your application with the CV and the personal statement and then your grades, like your transcripts. Mm -hmm. So they want to, they kind of want to know you, but then it's kind of like this, this thing that's not really said on the application page. And so then I, I actually had gone a whole round of applying to PhD programs and actually got rejected from like all the programs I wanted to get into the first time I applied. And then so the second time I applied, I decided to reach out to different advisors. And one of them happened to be my current advisor, Dr. Park Williams, and he, and he and I had a Zoom call and then we like got to talk a little bit when I went to the American Geophysical Union's fall meeting. That's like the bigger science meeting that happens every December. Mm-hmm. And I was there to partially present my landslides work, but also there to talk to potential advisors. And he and I really connected and, he, he, and I really wanted to work with him. So it was really great that that fell in line because Columbia has a really great earth science program and i was super excited to be here at columbia and the lamont doherty earth observatory that's here and also just to work with park williams has been amazing and also like my advisory committee has been amazing too so it's it kind of fell into place and you know location was also important and i'm really lucky that i got to be at columbia because i'm from long island and my family is on Long Island, so it's great to have that support network in the background of being able to go visit my family. For sure.
0: I was also thinking, um, I, I never confirmed this by Google, but I've heard that like the building on top of Tom's restaurant, is that part of NASA, <laughs> or is that, is that part of like, a
1: yeah, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Sciences is, is literally above Tom's restaurant. Oh. So wait, you have Seinfeld at the bottom and then you have like NASA at the top. Wait, that's so funny. Wait, how have you been inside before? Oh, no, I, look, I haven't. I haven't gotten access to that building, you need, oh, a, like you a... need a NASA badge to get in there. And I, I almost. I mean, obviously, I can't keep my NASA badge, but I did have a NASA badge at one point, but I had to turn it back <laughs> in when I left Goddard, I've always like heard that it
0: was a super important NASA building, but I never, I don't know, it was like not believable to me because it was right there, but I guess (laughs) now it's confirmed. And just going back to the point where you were talking about like forming a connection with your mentor before applying to PhD programs, I think that's again like going back to the importance of strong mentorship and of, of the personal connection rather than kind of just looking at you on a piece of paper like you were saying, yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> and now that you're a PhD student, your work is on wildfires, right? Yes. How did that
1: evolve throughout your academic journey? Yeah, yeah. So that also was something that started at NASA and <laughs> and actually was was crazy when I connected. So I so at NASA I was working on landslides and one of my jobs as a project coordinator was to To validate landslides submitted by citizen scientists, but also continue to help improve the database by adding landslides that have happened like every single day. And landslides are happening all the time. Like there's a Google News alert that we use in order to find new articles of landslides that happen, like newspaper articles. And I've been I was going through these articles, and in and in January 2018, there was actually this massive mudslide that happened in Southern California in Montecito like near Los Angeles. Mm. And I was so surprised because first of all, like I don't I didn't expect large landslides to really happen in the United States because a lot of the United States is urbanized. But also this landslide in particular was pretty fatal where it killed a little over 20 people, and I also didn't expect that to happen. And that got me thinking like how could there be such a terrible mudslide in the United States? And turns out just the month before, so December 20 20- 20 this is actually i think it's december 2018 Mm -hmm. no december 2017 um there was actually the thomas fire that happened and that fire like created these conditions above the hills in montecito california that then led to this ability for the, the fire to like dry out the landscape but also make the surface soil in such a way that is more susceptible to having this huge debris flow like the mud is able to slip down the slope easier and I realized that these there's all these interconnected hazards and like the earth is warming and incidents like this may increase and you might have more fires and then you might have because of those fires you might have more mudslides and it's all tied together and how do we protect human life and protect human infrastructure while also like, dealing with these increasingly hazardous conditions. Mm-hmm. And I actually had no idea much about fires because I grew up on the East Coast. And that got me really interested in wanting to learn more about them, which is how then I reached out to Dr. Park Williams and connected with him. And that inspired me to go on this path of learning more about fires and starting this completely new field where that I haven't really touched upon before for my PhD. And now I'm I'm just like in it, I'm just right now. So you're right, what you mentioned is my project right now is studying wildfires in the Western United States Mm -hmm. and how these different climate conditions like modern climate are affecting wildfires.
0: Oh, that sounds really interesting. Definitely like everything is so intertwined, especially when we're talking about the earth and nature and everything that's happening. Is your advisor's lab specifically also focused on wildfires or as as a PhD student, can you work on something that is more niche or more like a, more specific than what your lab is working on
1: Yeah so in the end the like the student really has to come up and define their own niche mm-hmm. so I start out with working on wildfires and I'm still working on wildfires but there is this ability to be able to to move in such a way that you can define your own question whether that's wildfires or in this case like my advisor he also specializes on on drought and also just generally on thinking about like moisture in the atmosphere and so hydroclimate so thinking about the water cycle and how that relates to the western United States. And so there is this ability to move around mm. and we'll see that I'm I just finished up my master's research so there's a lot of different directions that I could go in.
0: Nice and your master's research is a culmination of two years of research right two years of being a graduate student.
1: Right, right. Okay.
0: And then after that, you become a PhD candidate.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the way it works at Columbia is that the PhD program here is a joint master's and PhD program. So you come into the program and you might already have a master's. But the idea is that you still have to go undergo this qualifying exam phase where you you have taken a bunch of classes. There's there's like a large class requirement first where I've taken like three classes one semester, like three classes another, and then like two classes, one class. Eventually you like take all those classes. So you have this background body of knowledge of the earth system as it relates to your research. And then also in in between, so like especially last summer and then especially the second year of my PhD, I've been doing a lot more research while taking these classes. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the research paper that I have to write and then present and defend to my advisory committee as well as to a few professors who are outside my committee who are in a different topic so it has to be an accessible presentation for people who know like fires and who also have no idea about fires oh. and and then there's and then the defense also involves this questioning period so they because they assume you know about the earth system from classes you also have to be questioned on on topics that relate to your research, but are also like more broad and with the knowledge of, like, say, general circulation of the oceans and the atmospheres. Oh, wow.
0: They can ask you on that even if it's like kind of not related to your project.
1: Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, um... still like somewhat related. It has to be somewhat tied. <laughs> it's a new system, actually. The system got more research focused in the past two years. Oh, really?
0: So like right when you joined?
1: Yes, exactly. Oh, gotcha.
0: Is it how is it different from other Ph.D. programs? Is it an additional two years before you become a Ph.D. candidate? Is that the difference?
1: Uh, So I think a lot of other like there are some programs that do require you to come in with a master's already. And then so your program would be shortened, but and you would only focus on like the Ph.D. dissertation stage where you have a research question and you're only working towards answering that they're not taking any classes yeah but then for columbia you come in and i think a lot of united states programs do have this combined master's phd where you come in take classes and do a master's research project and when you pass this qualifying exam period you your status changes to phd candidate Mm -hmm. and then you're working only on your dissertation research that then leads to getting the PhD and you defend your research. Oh, I see, I see.
0: Would the people who are watching or who are judging you on your presentation, would they be professors who have taught you in classes as well?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, they definitely could be. I know the professors have to do so much. They have to sit on these qualifying exam committees for like 10 to 20 students. And then they also have to like teach their own classes and like come up with their own curriculum. And then they also have to advise like an actual PhD students for their actual projects. There's a lot of different roles to becoming a professor. And that's something I didn't really understand in undergrad too, I actually, and then you kind of don't really think about it because it seems like professors have office hours and they teach classes and and you can just visit them at office hours, but I wonder if professors, you know, also want that time during office hours to continue doing their research. Which I'm sure that it's not the case. I'm sure that that I, I feel like every professor I met at Columbia is like super invested in the learning of students.
0: Mm. We kind of talked about your transition from Harvard to Columbia, but how has that change in lifestyle been like from Boston to New York City?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And it's been it's definitely been tough. I miss Boston a lot, especially like Cambridge, so just like the little suburban town outside of Boston. I miss the small town feel and the local shops, and I know it's been changing a lot recently. Some of the shops that I used to frequent and like buy gift cards at or buy like little presents for my friends have since closed, but it's definitely, it's been really cool coming and transitioning into living in New York City, which I have not done at all before. I, I feel like every time I go into the city. I've always been a tourist before, but living is like a whole nother thing to tackle. And Columbia is definitely in its little bubble where where I think the town feels a little closer to Cambridge would make, which makes it feel a little bit nicer and calmer. And definitely, but definitely it's cool to still be able to go down into Midtown Manhattan, like down to, towards like Times Square. Having it as an option is really good.
0: Going back to,
1: your experiences at
0: nasa but like more with with regard to just like space in general you mentioned that you started you founded spaceintern.org or the website of spaceintern.org can you tell us a little bit more about what that is
1: yeah of course so this goes a little bit into like my passion for volunteering for the aerospace industry and part of that passion was sparked because i was a brooke owens fellow back in 2017, and that's where I did the space consulting. Like mm-hmm. this is right after my Harvard graduation. And for those who don't know, Book Fellowship is a is an undergraduate internship and mentorship program for, for like women and other gender minorities who are really interested in the space industry. And all the opportunities are mostly US-based, uh, but basically you get to get paired with an aerospace internship and then you also get paired with an executive mentor. So someone who's like CEO level or something really high in seniority in the aerospace industry. And for me, like I got to work at Bryce Tech and then I got paired with a really awesome like former NASA chief financial officer. And and I really got to know, that was like my first foray into like knowing the commercial aerospace industry. So then I was inspired by the Brook Owens Fellowship To give back to the community, and one of these ways is to create spaceinterns.org to help people like myself find programs like the Brook Owens Fellowship or any of these other really great reoccurring space opportunities that are mostly like nonprofit based, like that aren't able to make a job posting frequently online, but then they do occur every year and they're like funded, and people just don't know really how to find them. I mean, for example, when I was like I didn't even know about the Brooke Owens Fellowship until I found it on this random Facebook group because one of the mentors happened to post it there and I'm like how can people find that unless they're somehow lucky enough to be in, in the Facebook group so having a site spaceinterns.org that's super easy to search and to remember allows people who don't currently have a connection into the aerospace industry to get that connection yeah. and that that was my vision for it and so this this website is basically a resource page with links to all these other really great resources for the space industry. And it is also a database. It's a big searchable database that has ways to like check your citizenship, like what, like, cause space is hard. Some of the things are, some of the opportunities are US citizens only, but international students would then be able to not check that box and find things. Then there's like, All different kinds of majors and disciplines so it could be earth sciences you can be engineering you could be interested in space technology and there's all these other searchable fields and this this project was founded by me and my my high school friend chris fu who is a who is an md but also turned software engineer so he helped me code this up so we co-founded this and the original database that i that i used to get this all started was made by therese jones and michelle aarons who who decided to spin up like about like this huge database of about 68 opportunities and then since then i've added like another i've doubled that amount and now it's like nearing 200 opportunities so it's been super cool it's been a great effort and i've already gotten comments from people being like hey this has been so useful i've been using this to look for things i know it's definitely hard to find
0: if you don't know where to start like to find these opportunities, even though these opportunities are really great and they're like are are excited to help students grow it's hard to find them, so I think it's that's awesome do you mind if I link that in the description.
1: yeah go ahead okay
0: yeah so if you guys are interested in working at NASA or working in aerospace <laughs> then be sure to check that out also. I want to touch upon your relationship currently with art because I know you you talk about it. Um, with regard to your comics in in at Harvard or in college, and also in your graphics work at NASA, but I'm wondering, like, how is that playing a role currently, like, as a PhD student? And yeah, is it like a is still like a hobby that helps you de
1: stress in a way? Yeah. So my relationship is ever growing, ever changing, and right now it's. I think the the main theme is that it's my it's given me this creativity to be able to think more about my research questions and it's been a it's also been a tool to help me make my graphs more creative (laughs) like thinking about like how i share my science and share my science communication but then yeah as you said also it's it's still also my hobby like i love doing art and so i've been trying to do more art on the side like that's my own personal art and not just like for something else. And so I've, I've, I've been thinking about making more art with this lens on accessibility in the space like, like, Oh, what if people could all like join hands and hang out on the moon, like imagine if space exploration was more accessible. I've also like wanted to put more like art of like, like Asian American women in space. So I hope to create more art like that. And And actually speaking of like Asian American representation, I still use my art in order to like create things for other people and I use a lot of my volunteering. So for volunteering, we recently launched this, like me and a large steering committee of of other earth scientists launched this group called the Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in Geosciences. So anybody who identifies as AAPI in geosciences. And then, so I use my art skills to design the logo for them. Wow, nice. Yeah, so lots of different ways I'm still using my art. And oh, that's really cool. yeah, it's been great.
0: Yeah, I think the the part that you touched on about scientific communication and like the, the role your art plays in that, I think that's really interesting because again, like whenever we think of science, it's like hard graphs, hard data, like there's no room for creativity at all. But I think it's important to include some of that artistic rendition of your graph in order to make it more just like more appealing to the people who are reading it, but also more accessible to just like making, I don't know, just like making your graphs clearer or making your graphs just more appealing to people who might not initially be drawn to the sciences, but then like once they see a beautiful graph, maybe they will become interested in your research.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. No. I don't know. We'll see how beautiful the graphs can, can get. <laughs> yeah, I was actually recently on a panel actually on that topic of like motivating people to get interested in research. The whole point of the panel was basically like communicating the emotional appeal of science mm-hmm. through art. And so we have these beautiful glacier pastel drawings on one side, and then we also have this like film of how fires are burning down California on the other side and then being able to use those those visuals to either put people like on location to like see the beauty of nature or like to like witness the destruction based on climate change like really gets people drawn into science and then and like hopefully I'll be able to connect more on that side as well like with just creating beautiful pieces that make people emotionally connect with like climate change for example And then on the other side, you have to communicate the data, so then you have to make these graphs that that people can read really easily and then just in a second just realize like oh okay I understand this figure and and I understand the point it's trying to make. Yeah, that's definitely really important skill to have I think
0: like whenever we think of scientific communication. There's different levels to it right, I think a wired has this series like a researcher in that field was trying to explain science on different levels from elementary school to high school to college to grad student and then to like another professional so it's you have to be very flexible in the way that you approach scientific communication in order for your audience to actually understand it
1: right for sure
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah and i think I, I think i know exactly what kind of videos you're talking about yeah. where they they explain the same concept, concept over and over mm-hmm. but make sure to explain it using like different sets of vocabulary and like how to distill concepts down into like the base idea, so that way you still get the point, but then, but then, at least you don't need like a Ph.D. to understand the mm-hmm. material. Yeah. And, and just jumping back to the art, because now I remember it's Jeff Frost and it's Zaria Foreman. So I just wanted to throw it in there in case anybody wanted to look up their art.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, are they also so they're also scientists plus artists?
1: No, so they're they're strictly artists, professional artists, who have made it their mission in their art to convey these, these scientific, uh, not maybe not so much scientific ideas, but rather make these environmental connections. What about your
0: plans after getting your PhD? So how long do you think your PhD would take you, like as of this point now? Um, and then like, what do you hope to do afterwards?
1: Yeah, so it's very much still up in the air. So we'll see but I ideally I should be about three, four more years in my PhD and I'll be doing my research still. And you know I really would love to keep making a connection between space and earth sciences, whether that's like working with more satellites, with more satellite data and, or even just like working with the satellites themselves. So we'll really see in the future. But I think there's there's a lot of different directions, and you know it could be academia, it could be industry, so we'll see.
0: The this entire field, I guess you could say, is not only about space, but it's about the Earth as well. So now I'm rethinking my title because I I initially named this "Out of This World" for the NASA connection. Then it, I feel like it should be like "Out of This World" and "Around This World" and on this world and on this earth and just like all the connections that can be made between them yeah it's like out of this world but then back into this world yeah exactly (laughs) do you have advice for current students who are potentially going on the same or a similar path as you what kinds of lessons have you learned that you'd like to
1: share yeah that's a great question and i think you know because my own path was so winding even just like with choosing a research topic i think the big cliche one is, you know, follow your passions and if something is, you know, strikes your curiosity, you should read into it a lot, like pursue it, see what you can learn about it, because you never really know what kinds of what kinds of research topics you can come up with or or thinking about like what kind of people who are studying these things are. Like they could be they could be collaborators in the future, especially if you want to go down a research path. Yeah and i think another thing is that you know the internet is a great place there's so many there's so many things to read so many videos to watch that i think my big suggestion is just like keep exploring all throughout and like even on twitter sometimes there's a whole like there's a whole twitter community both in earth science and in space that is really accessible
0: that's really good advice and also a really good note to end off on i think so just thank you so much caroline for being on today's episode i really learned a lot and i think that whoever is listening our audience is also learning a lot too so just thank you for being here thank you so much caroline for
1: inviting me on here again like this has been such a pleasure i feel like we've talked about so many different things and it gets me so excited to talk with you that's so awesome
0: and thank you to our audience too for listening to today's episode And if you're watching this on youtube as a video podcast make sure to give it a big thumbs up and subscribe and comment down below and if you are listening to this on any other podcast streaming platform then make sure to hit the big thumbs up and follow if you can and we will see you in the next episode thank Ah. you thank you